welcome to Flow City with the dreamer and doer, Lonnie Gamble, and the ever-curious, Leanne Gluck. Flow Cities explores how we create cities that manufacture, grow, and produce everything they consume, transforming urban life into circular economies that are equitable for all, Earth included. So join us on a global journey as we meet with leading thinkers and doers in the Flow City Revolution. Well, hey there, Lonnie Gamble. Hey, Leanne. How are you? Good, just living the good life here in France. Uh, living the good life here in Fairfield, actually. It's been, a, yeah. it's been a really fun weekend. Yeah, it's been a really fun weekend. Tell me what you're up to. Well, it was my birthday. It was my birthday weekend. Wow, happy um, birthday. Thank you. It was Friday. My, uh, my sister flew in. She works in disaster relief, but she flew in for the weekend to, uh, wow. to celebrate. Mm -hmm. I, had a, uh, I had an old Hollywood soiree Friday night. <laughs> you dressed up? Yep, everybody dressed uh, up like from sweet. the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, yeah, we just took her around. We took her to Fair. We took her around Fairfield. We we visited the Andersons for a couple of farms here, and we visited um, a couple of the little villages, the kind of the villages of Benton Court and Farmington, and yeah. um, all those little villages in 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 and around Fairfield in Iowa. So it's mm -hmm. it's been fun. Yeah, sweet. What about, what about you? Well, this, this week I, uh, I work some more on a, a farm in, uh, uh, in an area of uh, Guyak where I'm staying, which was traditionally the area where vegetables were grown for the city. You know, we talk about uh, Flow Cities uh, producing everything they make, they consume, and one of those things is food, of course. And um, it's very interesting to look at the tradition here. And the, uh, there's a young woman who has this farm. It's called the... Jardin de la Hortelise, the area is called the Hortelise, and her grandfather and her grandfather's grand and her grandfather's father were both um, uh, Achard or um, uh, market gardeners there, and she still uses his tools. But she 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 didn't like agriculture because, and we can get into this, John. Um, she didn't like agriculture because uh, her her grandfather treated her as cheap labor, and she would just you know have to go and pick potatoes or whatever. But she feels like she actually learned quite a bit, and she went and got a degree in philosophy, and um, and you know decided to come back and kind of rethink you know food production and the food system. So it was very interesting to talk with her and use the tools and learn about the methods of production here. Um, I also went and looked at a, a a dream fantasy permaculture site, which is an old mill building with a natural swimming pool and. It's for sale for a really good price, but um, it's it's highly unlikely that I'm going to buy it. But it's it's like everything I ever dreamed of doing in France would hope would could be accommodated at that place. Oh, and so wait, why is it highly unlikely you're going to buy this place? It sounds bad. Yeah, and it's 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 a you know it's a, if it, you know if I wanted to start another small college, it would be perfect. You could you know twenty or thirty people could live there on day one, and it's oh. oh. You may have to sign me up for this project. It's well, I tell you what, if you start the if you start the college, I'll live there. And there's hydro turbines there, and, and they're the same same kind of hydro turbines actually that I had in Maine, same same manufacturer. So anyway, that's kind of a little bit of my my week. Played some music with some people, uh, drank some good wine like usual. Some new some new um, natural and organic and biodynamic wines. 
um, that were just uh, stunning and uh, some really fantastic uh, cheeses. And uh, I won't get, we don't have time to get into it all uh, because we've got a special guest today, right? Uh, we do have a special guest today. I am very excited about our guest. I know there's a little teaser of, of who it was on our last episode, but uh, do, do you want to share with our audience who it is? Yeah, I will. I will. Let's leave them. Let's, let's leave them hanging for just a minute because I want to go back to, um, to uh, and put a footnote in on our, on our show last week. Uh, there was a, there was a quote I wanted to, um, I wanted to, uh, uh, to, um, you know, give out uh, about the broader uh, aspects of Fab Cities and Flow Cities, and this will get into um, uh, connection with our with our guest this week. And uh, it's a quote from a guy named Indy Johar, who is a um, who is an a, a, an architect and a designer, and he's done a lot of thinking about um, you know what 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 are the implications if you could make anything anywhere, and what if we had cities that were like that. And he spoke at the uh, Paris Fab Cities Conference, 2018 Global Conference. And here's the quote. Fab Cities aren't about the distribution of production per se. It's much bigger than just about technology. It's about the distribution and decentralization of creativity. It's about how we decentralize the capacity to give voice and imagination. How we decentralize and distribute the capacity to express. It's about decentralizing and distributing the capacity to care. How we decentralize and distribute the capacity to create. And then we can actually talk about a different form of society. It's a fundamental transformation in what it means to be human. And again, I think, you know, what we're talking about, the things I like to look at in, in, in sustainability and, 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 and regeneration and, uh, are, are things that are um, transformative rather than um, incremental change and incremental change we need it's just an area that I don't choose to work in as much but um, and so this is you know this is this idea is you know can we create uh, uh, a change in humans relationships to each other and to nature that's on the scale of what happened when we went from uh, settled agriculture to um, hunter-gatherers to settled agriculture or, or the development of science in the Middle Ages or the development of the Industrial Revolution or the information and communications revolutions. I think that the Flow City Revolution has the potential to have that big of an impact on um, people's relationship to each other and to nature. So uh, with that, I wanted to introduce our guest this week. His name is John Eichert, and he is an economist, uh, and he, uh, he's an agricultural economist, and he's thought a lot about reinventing the food system. He's written Oh, uh, uh, half a dozen books, uh, and he's he's developed a whole new branch of economics, which he calls sustainable economics. And John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and visit with you and Leanne both. Well, we're honored welcome to have to the show. Yeah, we're honored to have you uh, have you here. And um, uh, we, I, I, rather than, I mean, I would love to. To spend the whole next of the show just introducing you, but could you just tell us a little bit about right. um, your your you know introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, your how you how you had the shift in your thinking about economics okay. and um, go ahead. All right, be 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 glad to, and I'll try to keep it short. But I, I started to think it's important to recognize that I I grew up on a small farm in in southwest Missouri, the state of Missouri, which is kind of in the center of the U.S. out in that part of the country. 
I was fortunate enough to, even though I grew up on a small farm in a rural area, fortunate enough to be able to go to the University of Missouri and eventually got all my degrees, my bachelor's and master's and PhD degrees from there. And at I that time, can I, I, want, I, mean, I want to just want to interrupt you briefly, John, because I happen to know that at that time, you could work your way through to a PhD that's, by working in the cafeteria at the school and not have a debt, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. You were able to do it back then. There was actually no tuition. There was yeah. a thing called fees. I think it was uh, $67.50 a semester is what we had to pay. So you worked no your way tuition. So in, the, in America, there were yeah. colleges that had no tuition. Right. This was wow. in the fifties. And, yeah. and and within within your within our lifetimes. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Maybe not Leanne's but, lifetime. <laughs> but go ahead. But anyway, I, I worked for a large meatpacking company for three years between my undergraduate and graduate work. But I I got my PhD in nineteen seventy, so that tells you how old I am. <laughs> uh, but anyway, after after that I I had a thirty year academic career in four different state universities in the US. The, the first half of that academic career. I was a pretty traditional agricultural economist. I used to say I, I worked with farmers a lot. I had an extension appointment as well as teaching and research. And I used to tell people, you know, I, I taught what, what I had been taught in graduate school. And it's basically that farming had to be a bottom line business that, uh, you know, that farming as a way of life had, at that time had passed and we had to move on to a time. And I was one of those that said, okay, if you're going to survive in agriculture in this kind of situation, you got to be prepared to get, to get big or get out because you had to achieve economies of scale through specialization, standardization, consolidation into larger operations, which I now call industrialization of agriculture. Mm -hmm. So I, I continued to do that at, until about the middle of my academic career during the 1980s, which I still refer to as the farm financial crisis in the U.S., and at, at that time, for a variety of reasons, uh, the farmers that had followed our advice, we so-called experts, to either get big or get out, they had gotten big rather than getting out. We got in a time of overexpansion of production and the export markets collapsed and farmers were cut with large debts where they had borrowed money for, uh, to buy land and equipment and building uh, record high interest rates, and they simply couldn't pay them off because commodity prices had, had fallen to a fraction of their previous level. And so these farmers were losing their farms. And I came to the realization as an economist that the kind of agriculture we'd been promoting inevitably led to the failure of farmers. Uh, because in order for some farmers to get bigger, it meant other farmers had to get out because we were expanding production faster than demand for food was growing. And so it was inevitable. Failure was built into the system. It wasn't working for farmers. And then I looked around and I could begin to see that it wasn't working certainly for the rural communities that depended upon those farmers for their economic and social well-being or for the the farmers in those communities. And so rural communities, there were communities in North Missouri or counties that lost 30 or 40% of their population during the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't working for rural communities. And then I began to understand that it wasn't working for the land. Those large farming fence row to fence row and the large farms, soil erosion was rampant. We were polluting the air and water with agricultural, chemical and biological waste. The large confinement animal feeding operations that were being built were destroying the quality of life for people in rural communities. And so I, I came to the conclusion that that kind of agriculture simply wasn't sustainable. It wasn't good for the land, it wasn't good for rural communities, and it wasn't good for farmers. And so 
I had to change. And the reason I understood it in terms of not being sustainable is the sustainable agriculture movement was just kind of breaking onto the national scene in the US at that time in the late 1980s. And the more I learned about the sustainable agriculture, say so agriculture uh, is not just about the economic bottom line. It's a way to make a living, but it's also a, a way to create a desirable quality of life, to be a, a, a member of a community and to raise a good place to raise families and, and to take care of the land, to be a steward of the natural, natural environment. That's traditionally what family farming was about. Diversified family farms were about a sense of stewardship and caretaking of the land so that you pass it on to the next generation as productively as it's passed to you. And it was about being a responsible member of community and raising families and then figuring out some way to make a living, a decent living in the process. Mm -hmm. And my, my brother actually spent his whole life on that small farm where I grew up. And when he eventually retired, he was milking less than 50 cows. He turned to a grass-based dairy, but he had a good life on that farm without industrial agriculture by mm -hmm. looking at it as not just a way to make a living, but a way to create a good life for himself and his family. So and, and looking that's, at the, that's looking, kind of what I've gone back to. Looking at the farm as an ecology. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been retired for more than 20 years now. I tell people <laughs> I continue to do well, what I do because I kind of feel responsible for the mess I help to create. <laughs> so I'm trying to help people so, clean it up. So, so tell us about, um, you know, that your your ideas about rethinking economics, you know, you right. saw what wasn't working. So and then you look deeply at the roots of um, of of the economic, you know, economic theory. Yep that underlies right. our, our modern capitalist market economies. Right. And, 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 and tell us, tell, tell us how, how, you know, this, this new theory of um, sustainable economics. Right. And I should mention that, um, you know, the, the, the word regeneration has become uh, 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 popular because right. uh, inevitably the words we use to describe uh, ecological agriculture get co-opted. Right. Uh, but, but that, but that sustainable, the word sustainable and sustainable economics includes within it uh, the, yeah, the yeah. concept of regeneration. So this is really regenerative yeah. economics as well as sustainable economics. And I'll right. shut up and let you. Okay. Because <laughs> there's other, yeah. there's other dimensions to it. Yeah, I think yeah. you have to start off when you're talking about sustainability these days because of the definitional problem. There's been intentional confusion, I think, because people don't want to deal with the real question, but right. sustainability is those of us that really take it seriously, I think generally agree is about meeting the needs of the present. That means the needs of everyone of the present and doing it in a way that doesn't diminish opportunities for those of future generations to meet their needs as well. And, and mm -hmm. very short, it's the ability to meet the needs of the present without diminishing opportunities for the future. And that's the definition of sustainability that mm -hmm. I take. So whenever I look at economic sustainability, it's not that different from the old classical economics in terms of theory but it's very different than what we call the neoclassical economics. But I'll explain where it comes from. It comes from the realization that everything of usefulness to people, everything of value to people, including everything of economic value, eventually comes from the earth. That's, that's, the, that's the only place there is to get it. When I talk about the earth, I'm talking about the biosphere, you know, the sun, the air, the water, the soil, the minerals, the life in the soil, the biology on the on the farm, the whole kind of natural ecosystem that makes up the earth. So that's the only place there is to get anything of economic value. Now, if we wanted to be so totally self-sufficient, we can simply go into nature and meet our own needs by just living on our own. 
But if we go beyond self-sufficiency, then we have to relate to other people within communities or within families so that we do some things, they do some things, and then we help each other out. So then you've kind of developed a social economy at that point. But if you want to go beyond meeting your needs from just relationships, personal relationships with other people that you know or you relate to directly, then that's when we create now what we now call an economy. And the economy does nothing except it lets us meet needs impersonally through transactions, through working for money, buying and selling, mm -hmm. as opposed to either meeting our needs directly for ourselves or through personal relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. So the, the basic idea is that all productivity eventually, all economic value and productivity eventually comes from the earth by way of society in terms mm -hmm. of modern society beyond self-sufficiency mm -hmm. and what you meet in the communities. Mm -hmm. And so as we, as we develop more complex societies, we let, relied more and more on the transactions economy, which is the impersonal transaction, and less and less on relationships with people within communities and then doing things ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in the process of that, we've, we've kind of lost our sense of where, where economic value comes from, but we also have lost our sense of what the purpose of the economy is. The, yeah. the purpose of the economy is just to simply help us meet our needs more effectively. It, it, so, John, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of um, this essay by, um, by uh, Wendell Berry called What Are People For? Right. And so I think, you know, you answer the question, what is an economy for? And right. so go ahead, go ahead, continue. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and so if, if you look at, at agriculture, I mean, if you look at the economy from a standpoint of everything of economic value comes from nature by way of society, you, you have a natural sound of hierarchy in terms of what you have to consider. If we look at everything comes from nature, there's fundamental laws of nature that we can't change. There's things that we can't pay enough, you know, to change, to do things that nature won't allow us to do. So the natural hierarchy is, is that we as a society have to respect the productivity and the bounty, but also the restrictions and the restraints of what we have to do to work within nature to maintain the productivity and the usefulness of those natural resources. And within our society today, then society has to conform, but then the economy has to be shaped in such a way that it meets the needs of society. So nature comes first because we can't change the law of nature. Then society arranges itself in ways that it meets the needs of individual or groups of people that are a part of society. Humanity is a part of society. And then the economy needs to function so that it meets the needs of those people living within societies in harmony of nature. But what we've done is we've turned that hierarchy upside down. The neoclassical economy basically starts off saying the, the purpose of human life, it turns out to be, or the purpose of all activity is to, for economic growth or economic development or to increase income or to increase wealth. There's kind of an underlying unspoken assumption that if we have more money, if we have more wealth, if we have more economic growth, then we're going to be better off. So, but, so, but reality is we're, we're, we haven't been better so, off in so the early it, days. Yeah. yeah. In that case, then, um, you know, um, economic value is taken to be, um, you know, the, the, the proxy for well-being. Yeah. 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 It's taken, you know, it's, economic growth is kind of substituted for the purpose of life. And so yeah, the yeah. economy now becomes the end or the goal that we're promoting rather than the means 
of doing something else that we want to do as a society yeah. and things that we want to do individually. And the, the fundamental problem with that is, is that economic value, economics doesn't respect the needs of society or nature. The, the particular model of development that I talked about for agriculture, sort of the industrial model that came about more than 200 years ago that dominates everything else, is, is a very efficient means of extracting and exploiting the usefulness from nature and from society. But as you mentioned before, there's nothing within that system that provides any incentive or even the means of regenerating or renewing the resourcefulness and the value and the productivity of either nature and society. So over time, you extract all the usefulness out of society, all the usefulness out of nature, and then you can't sustain the economy. So in order mm -hmm. to have a sustainable economy, you have to have a, a sustainable, regenerative, resilient, resourceful resource base in terms of natural resources, human resources. In other words, you have to respect the the laws of nature, including human nature, if you're going to sustain the economy. So, so if I can, so if I can see if I get this right. So, what you're saying is, um, in in conventional neoclassical economics, you know, the hierarchy is um, is there's an economy that uh, uh, people serve the needs of, and nature serves the needs of, and 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 that's the the purpose of people in nature is to have a robust economy. Whereas in right. your in your thinking with sustainable economics, then the hierarchy is that um, that um, uh, that um, the economy needs to serve people, and people need to respect the environment, and so so it's turned around so that the so that the productivity of the environment is primary, then that's that then society is in service to that and the economy in service to. Uh, to society rather than society yep. the other way around. Right. And we, we see the, the, the fallacy in, in that approach of saying, okay, it's, it's the economy first. And, and then if we all had more money, more wealth, that we'd all be better off. And right. even if we sacrifice uh, society, personal relationships, even if we sacrifice nature, because uh, if, if we think about it from a common sense sort of standpoint, the, the economy is about meeting those material, tangible needs that can be translated into dollars and cents, the things that you can, can measure. And, and those material needs are tremendously important. And in the early days of industrialization, uh, human well-being was increasing because that was, our, that was the thing that we were lacking most was those material things that were necessary for quality of life. But our, our individual sort of common sense tells us, but also the research is also telling us now that once our basic material needs have been met, those tangible needs have been met, then the quality of our life, our sense of happiness, well-being, contentment, beyond that is far more a matter of the quality of our relationships within families, within communities, the sense of belonging, a sense of being part of something larger like communities. Now we're getting to kind of the flow cities concept and the decentralization. That, those are the values that arise out of relationships and out of communities. And then beyond that, what's even more important is a sense of purpose and meaning in life. The, the sense that what we're doing matters, that, that what we're, there's, a, there's a sense of rightness about it. And, and lacking that, that comes from a sense of purpose, then no matter how much money we have, or even if our friends we have, if we have no sense of purpose and, and meaning in life, then nothing really matters. You know, if there's nothing in particular that, that we feel that we need to do, then it doesn't matter what we do. I used to say, you know, it doesn't matter 
whether you get up in the morning or not. But, you know, say, why get up? But why not? It just doesn't make any difference. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so we know intuitively, and the research shows that, that what matters is you, you have to have all of those things. When, yeah. And when, when you sacrifice the quality of your relationships and your sense of purpose and meaning, the ethical, spiritual dimensions of life, that where those come from, when you sacrifice those things in the pursuit of greater economic well-being, mm -hmm. you, you don't improve your overall quality of life. You, in fact, diminish it in the process of creating more economic wealth and economic growth. Well, I, I think we're seeing that within society today. Go ahead, Leanne. I have been kind of curious about, uh, you know, the inherent core values and core philosophies that underline what you're talking about. And also, you know, because a lot of our core values and, and our philosophies we see reflected to us in the media, um, for example, or in school or in our families that teach us what to value and what that means. So how do you, how do you shift people? Like, what, what are the core values and core philosophy that have to be, that, you know, sustainable economics need to be rooted in? And how do you shift people or ingrain those core values and philosophies into people in order to, to move this forward? Or do you even need that piece? Yeah, I, I think you do. I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion, right or wrong, that that when you talk about big transformational change, like Lonnie's talking about here, you, you've got to have three things in place. First, people have got to come to the conclusion that what they're doing now isn't working and isn't going to work. That's, that's where I, that's the conclusion I came to in the mid eighties, that the kind of agricultural economics and economics I'd been taught, it wasn't working. People weren't better off and it wasn't going to work. There was something fundamentally wrong with the model. But the second thing you have to have is you have to say, you have to believe that there's something else that you could shift to. And when we talk about fab cities, flow cities, uh, you know, transition towns, sustainable communities, all these sorts of things, that's, that's part of the vision of something to move to that would be more desirable. When we talk about economic sustainability, we're talking about an economic system that would address the problems that the current economic system is creating. And so you have to, think what we're doing now isn't working, isn't going to work. Here's something that we could change to that would be fundamentally better. And then the third thing you have to have is you have to believe that you can make that transition. You have to believe that you can get from where you are to where you need to go. And so th those things, I think, have to be in place for big changes. Lonnie, as you said before, you can tinker around the edges and improve the system without coming to those conclusions. Mm -hmm. And I, the, the best way I know to get people to realize what we're doing in working is just to ask themselves. You know, I, I, my first book I wrote was The Case for Common Sense, and <laughs> I want to return to common sense about kind of my life story. But, but I, I argue during these times of, of great transition, you have to be willing to turn to those basic core values. And we could talk about, you know, core principles of, of sustainable natural ecosystems like diversity and, and, and interdependence and individuality and uh, cooperation and collaboration. Those are, are kind of uh, characteristic, mutually beneficial relationships of natural ecosystems. But we can also talk about, we know something about the essential principles of, of social relationships, of personal relationships among people. And there's been research done on this. And there, there's kind of five, uh, the, the Center for um, Ecological Integrity or um, I can't remember, natural ethics or something of this nature did research, but there's five 
kind of core principles that they found that permeate all different societies around the world, all different age groups and educations. And that, that is honesty, fairness, responsibility, compassion, and respect. And they said, if you think about it, those are essentials if you want to sustain relationships among families and communities. If you're dishonest, unfair, irresponsible, disrespectful, uncaring, you can't, you can't sustain relationships within society. Yeah. And, and so I think you have to get people to thinking about those, those core principles that are reflected in sustainable and economy, the same thing, you know, you've got uh, scarcity and value and it, it relates to value and things that are scarce. And then you've got uh, efficiency and things of that nature. And so, so I think it's, it's, it's a matter of people coming to conclusion in for themselves that what they're doing isn't working for them. And then them being able to find that all of these different movements that are going on, include fab cities and flow cities and things like that, sustainability and regenerative agriculture, find, finding in these alternatives that people are creating something that to them looks better, and then convincing people, convincing themselves that they can change from what they're doing now to that better thing for the future. And I don't think there's any simple shortcut or magical solution. It's just a, an awakening of society to the fundamental need to change and then working together to try to bring that change about. Well, I think, you know, I think go ahead, Leanne. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Leanne. No, I was just going to say, I was thinking about the, uh, the quote that uh, Lonnie read in the beginning um, about uh, creating the conditions where people can, can, cre to be, can be creative and can thrive. And I was also thinking about when we went to Farmington on Friday, we met this uh, couple that they had purchased three old buildings from the 1800s. And they were turning these old buildings into kind of off-grid a home, this like beautiful, beautiful home. And they were sharing with us everything that they were doing and in part to help to restore this small town that, that they're gonna they're gonna move to. But they the skill sets that were needed. So they, they kind of needed this vision and these values and also these skill sets to do all that. And that's kind of one of the other things that was really kind of struck me. Like what are what are the conditions that we need in order to meet that quote, Lonnie, that you had said earlier, yeah. you know, um, you know, what, what are the skills that we need? How do we, how do we create those conditions to, to, to be able to do these kinds of things? Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, what we're, where the, the idea of fab cities and flow cities and, uh, sustainable communities, transition towns, where that ties in, you were talking about in that quote about decentralization. And but with this preoccupation with economic efficiency, the specialization and consolidation, uh, what we've done is, is we've, we've created communities and groups of people that, that have no ability to meet the needs within their own communities by relating among themselves. Mm -hmm. it, it, we've, we've consolidated, we've centralized all of these functions in highly specialized areas and highly specialized corporations and things like that. And, and part of this process of moving toward a more sustainable society, I believe, is, is to decentralize and repersonalize those, those impersonal kind of centralized tendencies that we've had in the past. We have to, have to recentral, I mean, decentralize and repersonalize our relationships so that we're meeting more of our needs ourselves. And, you know, like not going back to self-sufficiency, but being able to do more things for ourselves 
being able to do many more things within our local communities with people that we know and relate to personally. And then to me, that's where the technologies come in when you're talking about that, Leanne, is we've sort of abandoned the technologies that allow us, would allow us to do things for ourselves more efficiently and would allow us to do things on a smaller scale within communities more effectively. Mm -hmm. And it's the technologies that would evolve out of, out of creating fab cities and flow cities. Flow cities to me is when you bring in the social and ethical value and pose them over. So you kind of get the result that this fellow was talking about yeah. in your quote. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of deal with the distributive issues and everybody yeah. being able to participate and everybody right. being able to create. You need some sort of a structure that says, okay, we, we value those interrelationships. And then you, to me, technology is like the economy. Technology should be in service to people People should decide what kind of life they want to live, what kind of community they want to live in, what degree of independence they want. And then the technologies need to be developed in service to those, those goals and purposes that people have developed as opposed to saying, okay, what technology is available? And now how do we restructure society to use the technology? Yeah. So, so John, you know, you, you, um, you gave that list of, um, of you know uh, common cross-cultural uh, values, and then the list of of things that um, would need to be done uh, in communities for sustainable um, economics. And to me, that sounds a lot like the kinds of things we need to move towards to make fab cities and flow cities. And just to um, just to uh, uh, you know, for people who might not be familiar with the idea, a fab city is a city that uh, commits to producing everything that it consumes in a circular economy way. So energy, food, water, um, you know, ma manufactured goods. And, you know, we have these kind of new digital technologies like uh, 3D printing and laser cutters and CNC routers that allow us to um, build one of something for oftentimes not much more than the per unit cost of a million things. So the idea is if you could make anything anywhere in a decentralized way, um, and that everybody, anybody could learn how to use these tools, how would that change how we live? And I think it would move us in the direction of all those things you were mentioning we need to do in terms of rethinking economics. Um, and then the, the flow city, as you mentioned, uh, adds a social and cultural element and says, okay, we're going to put these, uh, these, these we're going we're gonna to do this in such a way that not just one person in the community owns all these means of production. We're going to have it as a commons. Uh, we'll have uh, fab labs that are um, uh, that are community resources where everybody can learn how to do this, and so um, so that's you know so so tell me, John, you know, with this, can you can you kind of you you've been talking a little bit more directly about uh, how how the fab city and flow city um, idea fits in with sustainable economics right. and, and and a new way of thinking about economics where nature and society have a pre, uh, have a um uh our the economy is in service to them rather than the other way around right. so how how could that work and it go, could you talk a little bit more about um you know the i know you're familiar with the fab city and flow city idea right. and how that uh, works go ahead yeah i think uh kind of going back to leanne your question about how do you how do you bring about change i think the the fab city and, and particularly the flow city movement is can be a can be a part of that, that bringing about change to show people that it's possible to make this transition. For one, you can talk about these cities as being fundamentally better places to live for those people that are disenchanted with the t today's kind of corporately dominated society. 
you can talk about them being better places to live, but the, the technologies you're talking about then can facilitate the, the transition. And I think it's, it's, it'd be interesting to at least start from the standpoint of saying, rather than trying to achieve self-sufficiency and say you only have a fab city or flow city if it's self-sufficient, if everything's done mm -hmm. internally, talk about it in terms of, of increasing the sovereignty, increasing the, the ability of a community to choose the extent to which it relates to the outside economy and the extent to which it protects itself or insulates itself from the outside economy. As I said before, the, the economy that's simply driven by, by profits and growth and to the extent that, that the economy is dominated by large-scale uh, uh, publicly traded corporations, those are purely economic entities. And so the broader global economy and national economies basically are, represent this exploitive, extractive model of economic development. So, so you, if, you have, uh, if you have the, uh, the ability then to manufacture things, grow things in agriculture, I see agriculture as being an important part of a fab city or slow city, I mean a, a flow city, and being able to generate your food supply, as much of it as possible within the community. But what I'm getting at, you, you, you're not going to be able to make that transition completely to self-sufficiency within a short period of time. So if you start looking at it as you start moving toward greater and greater degrees of sovereignty so that you can begin to insulate yourself from being dependent upon the outside economy, the exploitive economy for everything, and you say, okay, we reduce our dependence on that economy for food so we can protect the farmland and the farmers. We reduce our dependence of that community, the outside, for manufactured materials of various kinds, and so we can reduce our dependence on that exploitive economy for these things. And so you're, you're using it, the technologies to reduce your dependence and establish your your greater and greater levels of sovereignty. And you may get to a point, say there's only a, a certain amount that we can generate within the community, but if we have the sovereignty to decide only to relate to the larger economies in those situations where we benefit mutually from that transaction and we avoid all of those transactions that tend to be exploitive of the nature of our particular place, the natural ecosystems are exploitive or extractive of our society. So, so what we might what we might do then is we might think about uh, starting flow cities uh, from a uh, a statement of basic economic rights. You know, and, and we and we sort of have that now, but it's 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 not explicit. It's implicit because yeah. uh, we don't let people you know starve to death in the street generally, and we don't let people die at the doorstep of the hospital. So we say, okay, people have a right to some food and have a right to some medical care and some housing. But what we could do is we could start with saying, okay, here's, here's in our society, here's a basic uh, suite of economic rights. You don't get all the food that you could possibly want, but you get enough to have a good life and you get enough housing and you get enough of the basic things. So one of the things we could say in terms of sovereignty, John, one, one place we could start with flow cities is to say, okay, let's, let's create uh, some sovereignty Let's take away from the market economy uh, these kind of basic things that everybody needs, uh, a certain level of, and that's maybe where we could start. Um, I'll just throw that out yeah. as an idea. Yeah. What do you and, think about you, that idea you, of human you can do the, You can do those things at the local level. You could do that you know, within a small community. You could do that at the local level right away, and then you can grow that community as as your uh, as your ability to expand and as you prove to other people that this is a better way of life you can grow that community in fact i would 
suggest that you can develop fab cities within cities that aren't mm -hmm. fab cities. Yeah, yeah. And people could, could join the fab city and to the extent that they did or the flow city uh, movement and to the extent that they did, they would be included within the group and those basic human rights would be ensured to that group of people. And then you would hope that that group would expand as more and more people begin to see, hey, this is a better way of life. Uh, rather than just participating in the exploitive economy, then we'll participate in the, in this economy. So I think that would make make a lot of sense to me. Leanne, what do you what do you think about this uh, this this approach that uh, John's uh, uh, offering? Well, I I mean I, I was just thinking about your uh, the idea of well if you did have a flow city, and uh, we did have a. a if you did have a flow city, like let's say it was like a little little tiny town, like let's say Fairfield, perhaps that was turning mm -hmm. into a fully fed functioning flow city. I mean, who would who would be your ideal neighbors? Who who do you want in the city? Who who are they? What do they do? Um, what are the skill sets that you would need for a, for this to really work um, and function in, in the most effective way? Well, I, I, I'm, go ahead. To me, go ahead, the most important to me, the most important thing is that, that you have the shared values of what kind of community you want to create. And then I'll turn it over to Lonnie in terms of the technology. But I think it's it's critically that that when you will get a group of people together to form a cooperative or a collaborative, or you're going to have an alternative city or a CSA or whatever you're going to do as a group, it, it's critically important that the the members share uh, have shared core values that they're committed to. And, and that those values are strong enough of health that they will take priority over just short run economic self-interest. And, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to start anything or sustain anything collaboratively if you don't have shared values that you give greater priority to than the pursuit of individual self-interest. So Lana, and I'll leave it and, up to you to technology. <laughs> and, yeah, and just, and, and curious, is self-sufficiency one of those values is that an important important value to have i think it's to, to me it's more about moving toward greater economic and social sovereignty greater yeah. ability to decentralize and make decisions locally but you know the apparently the fab city concepts about self-sufficiency so. well and, and and interdependence you know and, and like you say john um you know having some autonomy uh from the global economy that lets you make those choices Leanne, you were talking about, you know, what, what qualities do people need? I think, you know, right now, most people's identity is as a consumer. And, and uh, so, so, you know, we, we know uh, thousands of brand names and we know, uh, um, you know, uh, the difference between Coke and Pepsi and all that, but we don't know the plants in our community and what use they might be for. So, or, or how to um, fix something if it breaks. So, one, one thing would be the skill set, I think, would be to think about the joy and the pleasure uh, in life if um, we go uh, move our, our identity away from consumers to being producers and co-producers. Co-producers like, for example, with a CSA where you're invested with your community, you know. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, kind of one of the essential shifts. Um, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, did I raise my hand? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. I love the idea of not just being consumers of things, but makers of things and not just being makers of things, but change makers. Mm -hmm. Sounds good.
Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a quote from uh, 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 one of my favorite makers. Um, uh, hold on, I'll, I'll, I'll find it here in just a second. But I, I, I had one thing while you're, while you're looking for that. I think one of the things that's important for people to keep in mind that there are literally hundreds or thousands of, of different movements that are going on all across the, the country. Um, uh, Paul Hawken wrote a book one time called Blessed Unrest. And he identified like uh, more than a million nonprofit organizations that were either dealing with social justice issues, environmental equity, sustainability, regeneration. There's probably twice as many now as there were then. That was almost 20 years ago. So, so it, it, this this whole sustainability movement is, is is so diverse and dispersed that it it people most people don't understand how big it is. But I see all of these where people are really saying we need to redefine uh, the economy and need to redefine society because what we're doing now isn't working. All of those eventually are moving in the same direction and eventually, you know, we'll figure out how they all fit together. So I see, you know, fab cities, flow cities, uh, transition towns, municipalities are all part of this larger movement that includes, uh, you know, sustainable agriculture, agroecology, food sovereignty, um, uh, permaculture, a whole range of things in the agricultural area. And so I think the change is happening. I can't tell you when it'll emerge and be considered as a, a dominant trend, but I think the change is happening all across society. Love it. Yeah, that, Lonnie, the, did you find your quote? The, the quote, I, 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 can, I can paraphrase it. It's Bill Copperthwaite, who, who lived on the coast of Maine and um, had a PhD in education, and he was a master maker. Uh, he made all kinds of beautiful things. But one of the th things he said is he said, I want to live um, in a community where people are intoxicated with the joy of making things. And so I think, you know, that's where we start to talk about this sense of purpose and meaning uh, and um, this connection uh, when we have a, a community of makers uh, rather than just a, um, just an assembly of uh, consumers. Um, so, um, uh, we ha we're, I think we're probably getting towards the end of our time here, Leanne. I think so. And we've, we, John has been very generous, uh, uh, as always, with his time and his... Um, uh, let, let me just add one thing that, that kind of ties in with what you have. I, I've always tell people, you know, in my old age, I've, I've come to the conclusion that we all have a purpose in life. It's not something to achieve, but it's kind of a path to walk. And I think it's consistent with what you're talking. We've all been led down a path to think that we're consumers and that we're workers for money. And if we have to work for money and consume, and that's what we are, but our, we've each got an individual purpose. I think we are created to be makers and we're created to be helpers and we're created to be thinkers and various other things. And if each of us kind of finds what our purpose is and makes the contribution that we can make individually to the greater good of things, then I think that's what it'll take to bring about the fundamental change that we're all looking for. Um, snapping to that, John. Snapping to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody has a part to play. Well, thanks again so much, John. We look forward to, uh, you know, as, as, you know, this is uh, exploration. We don't have answers here. We're just exploring these ideas and new ways in which people can relate uh, and new ways in which, like, these, these technologies are so productive um, and so um, um, uh, powerful that you could conceivably have people who worked you know, uh, five, 10, 15 hours a week. And we don't know what kind of society we could create if we take that much industrial work away from people and give it back to them. 
And so it's very exciting to think about this. And uh, you also, uh, I know, have, have written a lot about that, that uh, uh, potential for productivity. Right. So thanks again, John. Uh, we'll look forward to connecting with you again. Thanks again, Leanne. I hope you have a really great week. Look forward to connecting with you next week when we'll have, um, uh, we'll have uh, Dr. Phil Hawes, who was the, um, the chief architect of the Biosphere Project. And he's, uh, for the last uh, few number of years, he's been heading up an eco-village uh, design PhD at the San Francisco Institute of Architecture. And he's thought a lot about ways in which communities can uh, become more productive, uh, but stay globally connected, which is a key part of our global city idea. So thanks again, everyone. Leanne, any last comments from you? No, thank you again. This is Leanne Gluck, Lonnie Gamble, and our guest of the hour, John Eichert for Flow Cities, and we are signing off.